So we began Ezekiel in, um, uh, at the beginning, you know, <laughs> chapter one, right? We started, open up chapter one. And chapter one is one of the weirdest chapters in the whole Bible, where Ezekiel is pouting by the Kibar Canal because it's his 30th birthday and he doesn't get to become a priest. He's far away from Jerusalem and he's sitting there. And then the heavens open and he sees this really weird vision. And there's these four, uh, we, we find out later they're called cherubim, but he doesn't know that here. Uh, these four really weird angels and they've got four faces on each side and they're holding up. They have these wheels next to them and they're holding up this big platform um, that's like a crystal clear beautiful, the, the, the sea of glass, right, we call it, uh, in Revelation. And they're holding up this platform, and then on top of the platform, there's a throne, and then on top of the throne, there's like this guy, but he's sort of on fire. And then the end of chapter one, it says, and then I heard a voice, but he doesn't tell us what the voice says. All he says is, I heard a voice, and I looked up, and what I saw was the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Pretty cool. Pretty cool vision. But last week, we talked about, and then I got sick, and we missed a week. And then last week, uh, we read chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters 2 and 3, the vision continues. So really, 1, 2, and 3 are one unit. I just didn't want to do a four-hour sermon, right? So we split that up a little bit. And in chapter 2, you, you finish chapter 1, and you think, oh, man, this is going to be awesome, right? He has this, um, uh, he had this vision, all this great stuff. But then chapter 2 opens up, and the voice speaks to Ezekiel. And uh, the voice says, here's what's going on, Ezekiel. You don't get to be a priest, exactly, but you are kind of going to be a priest because the point of a priest was as a go-between with God and men. So you're going to be a priest and a prophet. You're going to be the go-between with God and people and, and his, and his uh, Israelites out there in um, exile, but also you're going to be a prophet because you're going to speak to them for me. And I bet Ezekiel at first was like, oh, cool, I get to speak for God. And then God goes, not that cool, because here's what's going to happen. They're going to hate everything you say, and they're not going to listen to you, and you're going to get super discouraged by this whole ministry. But if you don't tell them, when they get judged, it's your fault. You have to be the watchman on the wall telling that the judgment is coming. But don't be afraid. And then he said something else, and then he goes, but also don't be afraid. And he said something else, and he goes, okay, but really, though, don't be afraid. And the reason he says it like 100 times in chapters 2 through 3, I'm, I'm rounding up to the nearest 100. The reason he says it about 100 times is because I think Ezekiel was really afraid of what was coming, what this ministry was going to be like. Uh, one time I got offered a job in um, Uniclete, sort of offered it, like half offered it, pastor's job, you know? Like, was, would I be interested? Come talk to them. You know where Uniclete is? It's a town that's closer to Russia than any, like, oh, it sounded like it was coming from my pedal board. I thought something was on fire. Um, anyway, no, Uniclete is this small little town um, that's closer to Russia in Alaska than it is to any, like, other American towns. You know, it's like two or three little plane rides out there. And I was very excited that I didn't feel like God was calling me and Melissa to Uniclete at all. You know, I did not want to move out there. And Although I do like the idea of it never gets light. That sounds like my kind of place, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, Ezekiel, he's heading to Uniclete, right? He is, this is not going to be fun. So today, his ministry begins. The calling is over. Seminary's done. He's going. He's got his first church. Things are ready to start. But he doesn't start with a sermon, Okay, so I kind of hate this passage because what he starts with is a skit, a bunch of skits. Now, I was a youth pastor for a long time, and I am very proud to say that I am the only youth pastor in the history of the world that never did or had anybody do or participate or even watch a single skit, right? Yeah, mm -mm. me and I'm not skits kind of people, right? Because what I told them all was, it's unbiblical, it's stupid, we're just going to read through these books together. And then I opened the Bible and it's Ezekiel doing a bunch of skits, so now I don't really know what to think. Uh, so Ezekiel is that hip youth pastor who's going to do a bunch of skits and try to be cool, right? So um, no time for a super long intro where I talk about some uh, article I read or whatever, because we got a lot to read. So we're going to jump straight into this. Um, Ezekiel, uh, let's see, we're in chapter... Uh, four, verse, uh, verse one. 
Now you, son of man. So again, we've talked about this a couple of times, but I'll just say it one more time, and then I won't talk about this every time we read this phrase. In Ezekiel, son of man means like you're just a human and I'm God. In Daniel, son of man is like this, this um, God-like figure. Um, you know, one like the son of man. Jesus comes along and he merges the two together. Human and God, right? So uh, we're going to read this constantly throughout the book. I just want you, every time you read it, I want you to think what he means there is not like son of man, like Jesus always calls himself son of man. Here it means like you're a human and I am God. So he starts out, God starts out with, now you son of man, take a brick and set it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. So now he's doing art. Okay, you ever been to one of those really cheesy uh, youth group things, am I the only one that ever went to one of these, where there's like the band playing and there's a guy on stage painting and he thinks he's so cool, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're killing me with this stuff, right? Um, so that's what Ezekiel does, <laughs> uh, is exactly all that stuff that I hated for a lot of years. So um, this probably, though, what it would have been was um, a large sun-baked like clay tile. They had these tiles all over like the, the floor, and they would use them on the, the roof, um, and so he says, take it and set it in the middle of the group of people who are watching you, and then take something sharp and start drawing in the clay tablet. And you can imagine he's probably gathered a crowd at his house. His ministry is going to start. I don't know how he's gathered a crowd, because if you remember, he's mute. Except when he's speaking prophecy, for a bunch of years, Ezekiel is not somebody who gets to talk. He doesn't talk to his wife. He doesn't talk to his friends. Uh, he doesn't get to talk about the game, you know, with the, you know, like whatever happened with Steph Curry. or You know, he doesn't get to do any of that. So somehow, though, remember he sat at the, the, the side of the river, stunned. I guess it was getting people's attention. What's going on with this guy? So somehow he gathers this crowd. People gather to see what's up. And he takes this tile and he starts scratching it with a stylus. And you can imagine somebody goes, what is he drawing? Right? you got to imagine what it would be like. These are really weird stuff that's going on here. What is he doing? And there's that guy. Okay, if you've ever been in a Bible study, there's always one of these guys, right? Or like a group, any group setting. There's always that one guy who has to speak first, even though he has no idea what he's talking about. Right? And he always has to sound smart. So, okay, one guy starts to see some buildings. And he looks down at Ezekiel's little clay tablet. And he goes, oh, look, it's the city of Babylon. I bet is what he, they thought. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. He's drawing a city. And Ezekiel looks up, and he makes this face. <laughs> Can't talk, right? But he can make a face. Rolls his eyes, and he looks down, and he keeps drawing. Then somebody who's actually paying attention goes, wait, wait, wait. That's not Babylon. He's drawing the temple around all those buildings. And there's my house. Hey, wait, that's Jerusalem. Right? I remember, you know, if, like we, if you saw somebody drawing like our Etch-A-Sketch logo of the San Francisco skyline, it would take a sec, but then you would realize it's San Francisco. So then the question is, why is he drawing Jerusalem on this clay tile in front of a bunch of exiles who've just been kicked out of Jerusalem and taken on this march to Babylon? Uh, and then that guy, that same guy who thought it was Babylon, the guy who always has to say something first, I bet he speaks up. And he goes, oh, I bet there's a prophecy coming. I bet Ezekiel is going to tell us that we're all heading home and that God is still on our side. I bet at least a handful of people were thinking that. And again, Zeke, he looks up, <clears throat> rolls his eyes, and he looks down, and he keeps drawing. It's actually the opposite. Look at verse 2. Then, so he takes the clay tile, then lay siege to it, construct a siege wall, build a ramp, pitch military camps, and place battering rams against it on all sides. So in the next few chapters here, Ezekiel's going to do a whole bunch of little skits. This is the kind of the first one. Um, take this clay tile of Jerusalem and then get a bunch of little toy soldiers and surround it like a siege. Now, sieges in the ancient world were very common and everybody knew what they were. We don't really do this anymore. But, you know, the army surrounds a city that has big walls and they try to starve them out or they try to wait for the people inside to get diseased or eventually... The army starts running out of food on the outside. It says, we're going to take this city. And so there, there's a bunch of different ways to get through those walls. Uh, one of the ways to break through the walls of a city is what they called a siege wall. And if you ever watched Lord of the Rings or read the books, right? We all love Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, we saw this a couple of different times. But, but you can, you've seen it in movies, what a siege tower is. It's a big, giant tower 
on wheels that they would roll up next to the wall, and then everybody would climb up a ladder on the inside of the tower and head into the city walls. And what a siege wall was is they would take a whole bunch of these things together and they would tie them all together. So you roll this whole thing up. Like you basically build your own wall next to the wall of the city and you construct it and you build it so that then your guys can climb up um, and get over the wall. King Nebuchadnezzar will actually do this in Jerusalem. Uh, it's in the book of Kings where it talked about the siege wall that he builds. Um, so this prophecy comes true. And so Ezekiel, he draws on this clay tablet while everyone's watching. Then he gets some sticks or something, some little Legos. I don't know what he had. Uh, and he starts building these little siege towers. Okay, think about how long this all took. Everybody's sitting there watching Ezekiel play with Legos. And he starts building little ramps and a little camp outside the city. And he builds a little thing with the swing with a battering ram on it. And he's putting all these little, I'm in a subreddit, by the way, where it's all these like little miniature worlds that people build. And they have their little paintbrushes and they go really slow. And it's really cool. This is what he does. He spends hour after hour putting this all together. And slowly the people start realizing what it is that Ezekiel is saying. The Babylonians have already been to Jerusalem twice and defeated the city and taken captives, but they've left the city standing. They didn't actually have to siege the city. Uh, when they showed up, the Israelites let them in. And, uh, but now he's saying this is not how it's going to work. Now there's going to be a war. Now there's going to be a siege on the city of Jerusalem. So do you see it's actually the opposite of what our idiot from verse 1 probably thought. Verse 1 and 2. The guy who knows everything. I bet, I bet God is going to save the city of Jerusalem. And we know there were a lot of these guys because they were all over the book of Jeremiah, who was a contemporary, a little bit before, but kind of a contemporary of Ezekiel. Jeremiah, his whole prophecy was, the Babylonians are coming, and they're going to destroy the city, and it would be better if we just surrendered. And then there were all these other prophets. No, no, no. God would never let his temple fall. God would never let his city fall. And then you have these two guys, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they show up and they say, nope, that's not how it's going to work. So look what happens. Verse 3, next, take an iron plate and set it up as an iron wall between yourself and the city. Face it uh, that it is under siege and besiege it. This will be a sign for the house of Israel. So this iron plate, uh, I don't think we kind of, well, I guess kind of a big like baking sheet kind of thing. But a lot, what I read was a lot of folks in this time didn't have a lot of different pots and pans. They had one big kind of thing that's not quite like a wok, but a little flatter. But same idea, right? You can cook bread in the middle. You can cook meat on it. You can cook all sorts of stuff. So he's probably at his house. And go in there and get that thing and then stick it in the ground and set it up as a wall between him and the city. And so most biblical scholars agree that what's going on here is now Ezekiel is kind of playing God in the skit. He's saying, here's the city of Jerusalem, and I'm putting a barrier between me and the city. And this will be a sign, meaning, like, look at the symbolism here. There is an iron plate between me and you guys. You think, oh, God is going to come save us, but I'm on the other side of this iron wall, and I am not going to come save you. All right, so that's his first skit. It's not good news, right, that the Babylonians are going to come, and they are going to siege the city of Jerusalem, and God is not going to save his people. Maybe the second skit he does will be a little more cheerful, uh, no. Verse 4. None of these are. Just spoiler alert. These are all pretty depressing. Uh, verse 4. Then lie down on your left side and place the iniquity of the house of Israel on it. You will bear their iniquity for the number of days that you lie on your side. For I have assigned you the years of their iniquity according to the number of days you lie down. 390 days so that you will bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. So he builds his little thing and then... Uh, it seems like this happens right after he's done with his little Lego building, uh, his little model of Jerusalem. So while everyone is around him discussing what happened or what's going to happen in Jerusalem and this prophecy that's come from this now prophet of God, everybody's sitting around and they're all chattering. Remember, Ezekiel can't talk. He doesn't explain this prophecy. So the next thing he does is he stands up and we don't know what it means to place the iniquity on your side. Maybe he wrote something or I don't know. Um, he gets up, and everybody goes, oh, wait, Ezekiel, what are you doing? No response. So everyone sits down now to watch what he's up to. And he lays on the ground. That's it. And then he lays there some more. And they sit there, and they watch him. How long is he going to lay on the ground? And does he, he doesn't say anything. And then an hour goes by. 
And then somebody else is like, well, I got to go home. And gets up and leaves. And then another hour goes by. And then a couple of more people get up and leave. And they're all just watching this prophet laying on his side with the word sin written on one side. And then another hour goes by and more people leave. And then another hour goes by. And then after a couple of hours, probably everybody's gone. Um, did you ever see the movie Man on the Moon? Do you know this movie about Andy Kaufman? Uh, Jim Carrey played Andy Kaufman, who was like a comedian. Uh, on, he was on SNL in the 70s. He got voted off SNL. Anyway, Andy Kaufman really did this. He was on a TV show at one point called Taxi, and he had a little catchphrase. And he used to go tour around doing kind of stand-up comedy stuff. And everybody just wanted him to say the catchphrase. And he got so tired of just saying the catchphrase and everybody laughing. And so one day, he was at a college, and he was in this big auditorium, and everybody was, say the catchphrase. I don't remember what it was. I never really seen Taxi. Say the catchphrase. Say the catchphrase. And um, <clears throat> he gets really mad. And so he goes into his backpack, and he gets out the great Gatsby, and he starts reading. And he read the whole book. And by the time he was done, there was only like one person left in the auditorium. And at first, everybody laughed. Ha ha, this is really funny. And then he got to chapter two. And then he got to chapter three. And people slowly started filtering out of the theater. I looked up, did that really happen? Andy Kaufman really did that, apparently. Like, that's why it was in the movie. Um, but it's really kind of a hilarious scene in this movie. That's Ezekiel. He lays on his side, and everybody's bored. And eventually, uh, everybody leaves. So then what happened is Ezekiel gets up from laying down when everybody's gone, and he goes and he lays down in bed completely silent. The next morning, everybody comes back to his house to see what happened, to see, you know, what, what's this crazy prophet going to do? And he gets up and he comes out of his house. Everyone's on pins and needles. Is he going to explain the laying down for eight hours from yesterday or whatever it was? And he gets up and he walks over in front of them. And he lays down on his side again. <laughs> and then an hour goes by. And then two hours. And then three hours. And he lays there all day. And then everybody filters out and leaves. And Ezekiel gets up and he goes to bed. So they come back the third day. Maybe thir day three, he's going to explain this. He gets up, he walks out, he lays on his side all day. For 390 days. Year... After, you know, like, not year, day after day, week after week, month after month, over a year, he goes outside and he lays in front of his house. So I'm going to memorize this verse for next time somebody complains that my sermons are long and boring. <laughs> right? At least I'm saying something, right? All right, here we go. Verse 6. He tells him, now, when you've completed these days, lie down again, but on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I've assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. So, um... There's a little bit of, you know, there's a little bit of controversy about did these 40 days overlap with the 390? And it's one of those things that when you read the, when I was reading the commentaries, everybody, like the whole commentary was about this. And I'm like, who cares? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, uh, <clears throat> anyway, they were probably overlapping. But anyway, what's the meaning of these numbers too? 390 and 40? A lot of ink has been spilled. Um, most likely, here's what's going on. 390 years was the approximate time between Solomon and Ezekiel, right? The time between when the temple was built and about when the temple was destroyed. And during that time, the people were rebels and sinners, and they, you know, read the book of Kings. They constantly turned their back on God. And then the 40 years, if you're uh, uh, an Israelite at pretty much any point and you hear the phrase 40 years, what do you think of? Wandering in the desert for 40 years. So it was probably symbolic of judgment coming on a whole generation of people, right? That's the idea. Like, they didn't go into the promised land until everybody from that generation, except for two guys, passed away, Joshua and Caleb. So it's kind of a round number, meaning this whole, gen so, um, this whole generation will live in exile just like that generation had to live in the wilderness. And so that's sign act number two, right? This is his skit number two. First one is the Lego building. The second skit is I'm going to lay on my side, and then I'm going to flip over for 40 days and lay on that side. Number three is I'm going to lie on my back with my arms tied. So verse 7, face the siege of Jerusalem with your arm barred and prophesy against it. Be aware that I will put cords on you so that you cannot turn from side to side until you have finished the days of your siege. So the next thing he's supposed to do is lay down tied up. And the, the symbolism, the imagery is that the people of God were going to be tied up. They were going to be carried away. It'd be like a modern preacher 
I don't know, delivering a sermon or like a speech or something to Congress, um, you know, and he showed up in uh, those leg shackles and the feet shackles where you have to walk like this, everybody would have known, okay, he's probably going to talk about the prison system, right? He's using this imagery. It's the same thing, right? Tie yourself up and talk about and prophesy against Jerusalem. This is when he was allowed to talk. He was allowed to deliver this prophecy. So for the first time, if you can imagine it, okay, I don't know who showed up to watch him lay on his side, but let's just imagine you showed up for 390 days, right? That's a long time to sit and watch this guy lay on his side. And at the end of 390 days, he stands up and he wraps a thing around himself. I bet his wife probably helped him. We, we learned later he had a wife and a lot of this stuff happened at his house. So she ties him up probably. And he stands up in front of what's the meager little crowd that's left. And he speaks for the first time in over a year. Now, have you ever done like, you know that, you know when you wake up in the morning and you think your voice is there and then you say something? Oh, no. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Um, that happens to me sometimes when I'm preaching and I think I have a voice and then it's not there, you know. Um, imagine not speaking for a year. His voice this little, we'll find out later too that he's all skinny and stuff, but his, this little frail man gets up and he starts speaking. And you can imagine the little model of Jerusalem is right there too, but nobody's been taking care of it for over a year. So it's all dusty and it's falling apart. And he gets up there and it says, prophesy against Jerusalem. And so he says, Jerusalem is going to fall. And he gets into a prophecy. Um, we'll read some of those prophecies in the next few weeks, like what he was talking about. But this raspy voice, okay. So that's the third uh, sign act, the third skit. Now the fourth skit. Uh, look at what he has to eat. Verse 9. Also take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them in a single container and make them into bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days. The food you eat each day will weigh eight ounces, and you will eat it you will eat it at set times. You will also drink a ration of water, a sixth of a gallon, which you will drink at set times. Okay, so this, these sign acts, this sign act actually happens at the same time uh, that he's laying on his side. And so he says, the whole, the whole year and change that you have to lay on your side, you also have to eat this special diet. Um, make yourself some food. So all he ate for over a year was some bread, water, and this like bread made out of this cheap Stuff. Now, what's interesting about this is normally when you make bread, you just kind of take, okay, I'm going to be honest. Let's be real. I don't make bread. Okay. But what I read about this was this was take all the cheapest stuff that you can make food with and put it in like a bowl and make one bread out of it. Um, uh, this is how Melissa eats when I'm not around. I always make fun of her. She eats like a raccoon when I'm not around. She just, okay, we put some rice and some vegetables, and she just looks in the cupboard. Okay, we have these three things that nobody's ever eaten together before, and she loves it. She always says it's way better than the food we have to eat when I'm there. Uh, <laughs> right, but this is what Ezekiel has to do. He has to eat like Melissa. That's the, um, that's the punishment. No. Um, he has to eat also in these tiny little portions. Eight ounces of bread is not a lot. Um, what I read about was that this is basically a starvation diet. Um, did he eat this only during those 390 days? Uh, some people say no. He was living, you know, everybody would go home and then he would go back and feast, <laughs> you know, go back home. But most likely, I think this was all that he ate. His whole life had become this living sermon, like Hosea, whose wife cheated on him and he was told to go get her back and buy her back from the slave trade. And God says, that's like a picture of how I buy my people back. Um, I think during this, this 390 days, every day he got up and he got thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker. Um, basically, the exact opposite of what happened to me during the lockdowns. <laughs> right? I sat at home doing nothing and stuffing my face with Cheetos and I add a little bit of extras, you know. Uh, he was doing the opposite of that. He was sitting there lying still, but also not eating a bunch and getting thinner and thinner. And the point was, this is what's going to happen to the people during the siege. During a siege, it gets awful. Like, not just the siege of Jerusalem, just in general, sieges in the ancient world. Um, we talked about this, uh, I think I said this last week, maybe. I don't remember. Um, maybe I wrote this for next week. It all kind of gets jumbled together. But um, during sieges, what happens a lot is you run out of food. And when you run out of food, what you start doing is eating people as they die. And the first people to die always are the elderly and children. And so, 
it's very well documented that what happens during sieges is people end up eating their kids, eating their parents, eating the old people. It's horrible just to try to stay alive. And so the point is people are going to have food rationed. It's going to be scarce. People are going to trade their BMWs for crackers. They're going to trade their Rolex watches for carrot sticks, just trying to find anything to eat. So that's the fourth sign act. Uh, now the fifth one. Not only is the food going to be rationed, it's going to be terrible. Verse 12, you will eat it as you would a barley cake and bake it over dried human excrement in their sight. Whew. The Lord said, this is how the Israelites will eat their bread, ceremonially unclean, among the nations where I will banish them. So the next thing he tells them is, eat this food cooked over human feces. But Ezekiel's been a priest his whole life, right? Or he was training to be a priest. This guy knows the rules about clean and unclean better than just about anybody. And so verse 14, he says, Oh, Lord God, I've never been defiled. From my youth until now, I've not eaten anything that died naturally or was mauled by wild beasts. And impure meat has never entered my mouth. He replied, the Lord replied, Look, I will let you use cow dung instead of human excrement. And you can make your bread over that. And he said to me, son of man, I'm going to cut off the bread supply in Jerusalem. They will anxiously eat food they have weighed out and drink um, and dread drink rationed water. <clears throat> and in dread, drink rationed water for lack of bread and water. Everyone will be devastated and waste away because of their iniquity. And so the point of this whole thing, he says, no, please, I, I can't eat something cooked over human crap. <laughs> right? I can't. He's like, I'm a priest. You've reached the limit, God, of what you're asking me to do. And surprisingly, God goes, all right. <laughs> yeah, good point. You know, <laughs> I mean, this is not a sermon about does God change his mind. But uh, God goes, yeah, all right. You can use cow dung instead. People will still get the idea, right? They'll still get the picture. And so that's what he does. And he says, remember, like, to these folks, well, not to all of them, because a lot of them actually didn't care, and that's why they're in exile. But to a lot of these folks, the idea of eating something impure was like a big deal. Right? I've never broken the, the church rules, you know what I mean? Like, I've, I've tried to live this pure life my whole life, and now you're asking, you know, and I'm being forced to break the laws of my religion. All right, so next uh, act, skit number six, uh, he starts messing with his hair. So let's look at this, verse one of chapter five. Now you, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as you would a barber's razor and shave your head and beard. Now, shaving a long beard and, a, and long hair, which is what he would have had, um, with a sword is messy business. And it probably takes a lot of time and it's not very clean. You don't get a clean shave when you shave with a sword, right? It, it, um, it probably ends up being pretty bloody. You can, you, so you can picture what's going on here. But why does God ask him to do this? Well, in this culture, you would only shave for one of a couple reasons. Pretty much everybody had beards. Um, uh, even the women. No, that's from Lord of the Rings, right? The dwarf women and the beards. Okay, never mind. Uh, so everybody has beards. And uh, you would only shave it for one of a few reasons, right? Um, if you took a vow at the temple, there were certain things. At the end of the vow, you would go and you would shave your head. And, you know, it was like a ritual purity kind of thing. The second reason is a lot of times they would do this when they were in mourning. Like somebody, a family member died. It was part of the, the funeral rites. And the third reason is sometimes they would be forced to do this as an act of humiliation from their enemies. Um, so somebody would come in and take over the town and whatever men were still alive, they would take those men, they would shave their heads and shave their beards. So everybody knows these are the guys that couldn't protect their families. All right, it was this act of shame. I don't think anybody would look at Ezekiel here and think, oh, I bet he took a vow at the temple. So that leaves us with the second or third options. Either it was a symbol of mourning or it was like an act of humiliation. Um, it could kind of be either one, both of those fit. So then shave it and then take a set of scales and divide the hair. So in the Bible, when you hear about weighing something, it's always a picture of judgment. Like, you, you know, you've been weighed and like that's the idea, right? Is the, what your deeds are weighed. And so he says, take these scales as an act of judgment and uh, weigh something, measure its worth. Uh, so take it and divide the hair up. Verse 2. 
You are to burn a third of it in the city when the days of the siege have ended. You are to take a third of it and slash it with the sword all around the city. And you are to scatter a third to the wind, for I will draw a sword to chase after them. So you can imagine the scene. Ezekiel takes maybe a half an hour to an hour in front of everybody with this big giant sword. And he starts cutting his beard. He starts cutting his long hair. And standing at the end of it before him is this bald, clean-shaven, sickly little dude, because this is right at the end of the siege, right at the end of the 390 days. And no doubt he has blood on his hands and his face, and he doesn't have little tissues to put on it, you know. And he's, got, he's bleeding down his face from shaving with his sword. And in front of him on the ground is this pile of hair. And all the hair, uh, what he does, he, so he bends over. And remember, he can't talk, and everybody now is like, what is this guy up to? And he takes a bunch of the hair, and he puts it on his scale. He puts it in the three little piles. And people start thinking, what a weirdo. And he grabs a scale from the marketplace. This would have been another long and tedious process. And my guess is that he got it exactly right. You know, like the, okay, put one hair here on the scale. You know, like he's trying to be as precise as he can. And he takes forever, and he measures out this hair. And when he's done, he takes, everybody realizes, okay, the hair is now divided into thirds. He's just done this big skit about the temple and the siege of Jerusalem and all this stuff. So he takes the first pile of hair and he throws it in the fire. And it all burns up and it's that smell of burning hair. You can imagine that hitting your nostrils. You guys know that smell? I'm the only one that constantly reaches over a candle. Oh, right. Uh, That burning hair smell, right? Everyone gets the message. A third of the people are going to die when Jerusalem is burned. So then he takes the second pile, and he puts it in the middle. And then he goes down, he picks up the sword, and he just goes, bananas. Oh, oh, he's hacking the the hair with the sword. When I was thinking about this, I wondered a lot, because I don't know how much damage you can do to a pile of hair with a sword. (laughs) But it's kind of all symbolic, right? You get it. A third of the people will then die in battle. Okay, so God's going to leave a third of the people alive. That's what everybody's thinking. So he picks up the hair from the third pile. And it's a very windy day in Babylon, right, by the Kibar Canal. He walks outside. It's like one of those San Francisco windy days at the top of Knob Hill where I live where it's extra windy. And he throws it in the air. And the wind scatters the hair. So a third will die when the city's burned, a third will die in battle, and a third will be taken into exile. Right? They'll be scattered to the wind. Well, that's all some pretty terrible news, isn't it? But then verse 3, a little glimmer of hope. He says, But you are to take a few strands from the hair and secure them in the folds of your robe. Take some more of them, throw them in the fire, and burn them. The fire will spread from it to the whole house of Israel. So he picks up a few of the hairs off the ground, and he puts them, uh, and he kind of folds up his little uh, robe. You know, they had these robe kind of things that they would wear. I read about there was a way to kind of fold it up and tie it so you sort of had pockets. So I'm guessing that's what he did. And he folds, and he, he, he puts a little bit into, there, into the pocket. The idea is that God will preserve a remnant. He's third scattered, a third die. Um, a third die in fire, a third die in battle, a third scattered. But a couple of you guys, I'm going to preserve a remnant. Um, I have a quote here. I don't have this slide for this, from this commentator. He says this, The long-running drama was at last finished. The last scene played out, but there was no applause. Right at the end of a skit, everybody just jaws on the floor. It's just silence. More probably greeted the final curtain, silence. But for the crackling of the fire, the gasps and sobs of Ezekiel, and the acrid smell of burning hair. But it was a silence that did not last long. The acting was over. The prophecy was not. But for some gesture, Ezekiel signaled that he was about to speak. Not, we may imagine, with the thunderous voice of Amos, but with the weak and parched struggle. So earlier when it said, get up and prophesy, this is when he actually does it. With the struggle of a voice unused for over a year. And his mouth opened, his tongue was loosened, and the first words were given to him 
the uh, sorry, and his first words were those given to him a week after his first vision. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look at verse ten, five. This is what he says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I have set Jerusalem in the center of the nations with countries all around her. So Jerusalem is kind of the center of the ancient world is what he says. An oasis, it's supposed to be a light to the people around it, an oasis in the desert of spiritual life. Verse six, she has rebelled against my ordinances with more wickedness than the nations and against my statutes with more uh, than, countries, than the countries that surround her. For the people have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statutes. So instead of turning the nations towards God, the people let their influence run the other way around. They let the, peop- they let the people around them influence them. They did everything backwards, and they turned to the God instead of the nations. Verse 7, Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, because you have been more insubordinate than the nations around you. You have not walked in my statutes and kept my ordinances, and you have not even kept the ordinances of the, nation- ordinances of the nations around you. Therefore... This is what the Lord God says. See, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will execute judgments within you in the sight of all the nations. Because of your detestable practices, I will do to you what I have never done before and what I will never do again. As a result, fathers, this is what we, we said earlier, fathers will eat their sons within Jerusalem and sons will eat their fathers. I will execute judgment against you and scatter your survivors to every direction of the wind. So if you remember from the very um, beginning of the book of Ezekiel, when we were talking about uh, exile and all this, we read the, the, we read the curses of breaking the covenant. God says, here's the deal. If you guys want to make this deal with me, we'll do it. If you follow me, here's what I'm going to do. And if you don't follow me, here's what we're going to do. And in Deuteronomy 28, Moses even mentions the curse. And he says that the siege will get so bad that you guys are going to start eating each other just to stay alive. Right? That's even in the... the like Moses said this like a thousand years before this. He said, if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen. And so keep going. Verse seven, uh, sorry, verse 11. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I will withdraw and show you no pity because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your abhorrent acts and detestable practices. So you have defiled the temple of God, and we'll read about that in chapters 8 through uh, 12. Yes, I will not spare you. A third of your people will die by plague and be consumed by famine within you. A third will fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter a third to every direction of the wind, and I will draw a sword to chase after them. When my anger is spent and I have vented my wrath on them, I will be appeased. Then after I have spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, Yahweh, I, the Lord, have spoken in my jealousy." So when Ezekiel was a very young boy, there was a huge revival in the nation under this guy named King Josiah. But by the time, just within a few years, the people have completely uh, turned away. They've forgotten the law of God, and they have um, adopted the practices of all the pagan nations around them. And I think part of what happened is they forgot the law of God. Then Josiah found the, the Pentateuch. He found the Torah. And they all started reading it, and there was this big revival. But I think the next generation after that happened started thinking, I don't think God's really serious about this. Our parents were all about this. They had this huge revival, but I think it's empty threats. I don't think God really means what he says. And so through Ezekiel, God is telling that next generation, no, no, no. God does mean what he says. Verse 14. Uh, Sorry, let me flip my page here. Verse 14, I will make you a ruin and a disgrace among the nations around you in the sight of everyone who passes by. So you will be a disgrace and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations around you when I execute judgments against you in anger, wrath, and furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. So the horror of these verses is magnified uh, exponentially when you realize that he's talking to an ancient Near East honor-shame culture. Right? Not only will you suffer, but you'll suffer in the sight of everybody else so that your honor will be taken from you and you will live in disgrace. And he says, I'll make an example of you. Um, this is really messed up, but this is what they used to do in the Wild West. You know, they would hang some guy for horse thieving or whatever, for murder or something. And then they would take his body... And they would put him in a coffin, and they would stand him up outside the saloon or the sheriff's office or whatever with a little sign that said, this is what this guy did. 
right? And you can walk by and go, I was going to steal a horse. And now I have to look at this bloated, disgusting body who's been, you know, whatever, shot, hung, whatever. And it'd make you think twice. That's what God says I'm going to do to you guys, to the Israelites. This is going to be so bad that everybody's going to look around you and go, oh boy, I wonder what they did. Right? I better not do whatever they did. All right, the last two verses, verse 16 and 17. When I shoot deadly arrows of famine at them, arrows of destruction, that I will send to destroy you, inhabitants of Jerusalem, I will intensify the famine against you and cut off your supply of bread. I will send famine and dangerous animals against you. They will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you, and I will bring a sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. So this section then ends after these skits on this super sour, depressing note. There's no parables here. There's no word pictures, just straight up truth. Because you have turned away from me. I'm going to send the armies uh, of your enemies against Jerusalem. They're going to siege the city. There'll be war and famine, sickness and death. And you will know that it's true and that it's happening because I promised that it will. And I never speak falsely. All right. So that's Ezekiel 4 and 5. Kind of a heavy chapter. Okay, a lot of the book of Ezekiel is going to feel exactly like this. <laughs> right, there's some heavy stuff until we get into the 30s where the, the tone of the book sort of shifts. What do we do with a passage like this? Well, there's a few different ways we can go. I'm sure a lot of you have questions about the judgment of God. You know, we just read about he's going to send the armies of Babylon so that people are going to have to eat each other. Right? And people are going to die in, in battle and die from disease and famine and all sorts of stuff. Um, in our modern context with our Western values, a lot of what we just read super rubs us the wrong way, doesn't it? Uh, the book of Ezekiel is going to talk about this a lot. And there's, like I said, massive sections where we talk about judgment. So what I'm actually going to do is we're going to do a whole couple of sermons on this down the road. So this whole idea of what do we do with this harsh judgment of God, uh, we're going to table that. I promise if you stick around for Ezekiel, we are not going to just pretend this isn't here. But for now, we're going to pretend this isn't the point. <laughs> Right. I want to talk about something else. I want to focus on something else in this text. Why did Eze I want to answer this question. Why did Ezekiel act out a sermon? Why was this the visual kind of thing? Why didn't God tell him, just go tell the people on this date in a few years, the Babylonians are coming, and here's a five-point PowerPoint about all the things that they're going to do to you. That's not what he did. Why did he build a Lego model of Jerusalem and then lay on his side and tie himself up and eat the meager diet cooked over the the cow dung, and then he cut his hair with a sword. And to make it even more baffling, remember, all of this took over a year to act out these bunch of skits. Well, think about how humans process information. We're not androids, right? When I did the book of Luke, when we went through the book of Luke, I was reading Lord of the Rings, so every illustration was from Lord of the Rings. Well, now I'm watching Star Trek Next Generation again. Galen knows what's up. I got my Enterprise tattoo right here. I got to watch it at least a couple of times a year. Anyway, um, on, on, sorry, on Next Generation, on the Enterprise, the ship, there's a Lieutenant Commander Data. He's my favorite character in Star Trek. He's an android. And the way he processes information, he doesn't really understand stories. It's just fact. You know, he tries to put everything in facts. And it, it, we're supposed to watch him and go, that's not how people think. Right? That's not the way people work because we don't work that way. Right? How do we process information? Through story and through visuals uh, and sounds and smells? Right? For example, let's just take the idea of war. Think about the, just the, the concept of war. In American stories and growing up in American public schools and everything, right, we sort of have celebrated the idea of war. And we have heroes from war stories that we elevate. And we have like Washington crossing the Delaware. You know this story? And the free, you know, this guy? Right? Uh, well, you can't see. This guy? Right? He looks all majestic to go across. Why did he cross the Delaware? To go kill 22 people who were made in the image of God. Bullets through flesh and blood and crying and weeping for mom as people are dying. But why do we love war? Because of this. Right? We have the image in our minds. We've been, we've been taught through imagery and through, um, through majestic war movies and stuff, like that there's this glory to war or something. And, um, you know, but is war good? Not is it necessary or just, 
But like, is it good? No. But a lot of the imagery we've been given has shaped how we think about war, right? Recently, though, there have been a lot of movies on the other side of that, trying to swing the ball the other way, like All Quiet on the Western Front, or which I haven't seen yet. I read the book in high school, but I heard the movie's really good. Um, isn't tonight the Oscars? Are they winning all the Oscars right now for All Quiet? Anyway, um, Clint Eastwood made two movies that made a lot of people mad. One was called Flags of Our Fathers, and the other one was called Letters from Iwo Jima. And it was the story of the Battle of Iwo Jima told from the side of the Americans and then told from the side of the Japanese. Anyway, uh, my point is you can read an article from the New York Times about how war affects soldiers and how war, you know, what it looks like, or whatever, you know, just about what war is like. And then you can watch a Clint Eastwood movie. And you can see a teenage kid crying as he's been shot. And you have the imagery in your mind, right? My point is these images really hit our emotions. It hits you on a whole other level because that's how God wired us. God could have made us androids like Lieutenant Commander Data that just process information in a very like organized, factual way and take it in and fully understand it. That's just not how we're wired. And so today, I want you to think about this this is why Ezekiel laid on his side for 390 days. Because for 390 days, the people in the room watched him. And the image of him wasting away slowly, day after day after day, eating these meager rations of food cooked on cow crap. Hit, they smelled the dung cooking. They smelled uh, the food. It probably didn't smell very good. They looked at Ezekiel with their eyes and they saw him and they saw the blood as he shaved his head and they watched the fire and the hair burn in the fire and all these things hit their senses. And they did that because, like I said, that's how we're wired. And if that's how we're wired, we have to think, how can we then apply that idea to our lives now? And I want you to think about two things. The first is that your life is a sign act. Your whole life is a skit that people watch. People look at you and they go, they learn about who you are and what you're about by watching your life, right? Because we live in the West, I think, I talk about individualism a lot, but because we live in the West, um, we just live in this world of individualism and it's entered our faith. And so we think about kind of our struggles with faith and our sanctification and the things that we're trying to do to follow in the path of Jesus. And we think about it in terms of ourselves. How will reading my Bible tonight make my life better? How will going to church make me feel the presence of God more fully? How will fill in the blank get me ready for heaven? Whatever it is. Uh, thinking about me, 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 though, is not the whole story. The whole story is much more rich. Jesus died to save you, and in faith you're redeemed. And now that you're redeemed, he's making you new. But not just for your own sake. He's not making you new just for you. He's making you new so that he can use you as a light to the people around you. Look at this verse from Philippians. It's Paul talking. He says, So that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights to the world. So Paul tells the Philippian church, you need to be blameless, innocent, be children of God. But what's his reasoning for that? What's the goal? He doesn't say be blameless and innocent, be children of God, so that you'll feel really good about yourself. His reasoning is so that then God can use you as a light to the world. So when you sit and you read your Bible and it grows you in faith, it's not just for you. When you come to church and you listen to an Ezekiel sermon about some obscure skits that some guy did 2,500 years ago, it's not just for you. When you pray, fast, fellowship, it does. It grows you, but not only for your benefit. These are things that God does in your life to make you into like a sign act. That's what they call them in Ezekiel, these sign acts. To make your life into a skit that people can look at. And your life hits people. This, you know, Watching you live is going to hit people the same way that these sign acts hit people. And so the people you know well, the Pabst Blue Ribbon kind of people that we talk about a lot, they should look at you and the way you live your life, the way you talk to your family and your spouse, the way that you're generous when it's time to tip at dinner, the way that you always offer to give somebody a ride home, the way that you love people, the way that you serve people. These Pabst folks should look at not just what you say, but they should look at your life, and that should impact them because we're kind of people that take in visual 
stories the way that we do. So the problem is, a lot of times, the story of our lives doesn't match up with the gospel that we're preaching. And that really pushes people away from God. So we want to be these visual acts, right? These visual signs. Um, somewhere right around here, Dennis, is where you can stop the sermon. Because what we're going to do now is I want you to think about the second way that this works. And I, um, I'm skipping the song right here because what we're doing is we're going straight into communion. This is, our, this is our slick transition communion, right? The second thing I want you to think about is that God has given us sign acts to look at and think about as well. Baptism is the first one. We call them sacraments. They're sort of these outward things that we do that tell us about an inward reality. So the first is baptism. Um, baptism is really cool. It's a visual experience um, that practice what's, um, sorry, that illustrates to the world what's already true about you, that I've been washed clean. It's like taking a bath. Um, you can come on up. Yeah. Um, that uh, I've died and been raised with Christ. That's the idea with baptism. It's a sign act. And it's, you feel the cold water, right? And I mean, if you were baptized, most of us, we remember that moment. But baptism is a thing. It only happens once. Okay, like, we're not the kind of church that, like, I've met a few of these people. Hey, I want to come to your church. Can I get baptized? I'm like, well, have you been baptized before? Yeah, like 48 other times, right? I gotta, you don't keep doing it. It's like a once and all for all kind of thing. Um, uh, but we do have a thing that we do keep doing, that we do constantly, and that's communion. This is the thing we do every week. It's a, a visual representation. It's tangible. You hold bread, and it's squishy, right? We have squishy bread today, right? right? It's soft. It's like, yeah, it's, this is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You pop the bread in your mouth, and you taste the bread, right? The, the taste hits your senses. And then you hold the juice or the wine. We have juice, right, today? Yeah, juice. You take the juice, and you taste it. And you remember what that flavor, like, we do this every week, and you remember the blood of Jesus was poured out for you. This, this meal that Jesus gave us the night before he died is really an act of grace for us. Because we're stupid, right? And we constantly forget what it is that saved us, how it is that we were saved. And we show up on Sunday and we think, if I'm just good enough, God will save me. If I'm just a little bit better, he'll love me more. That sin that I struggle with constantly and I keep turning back to. I had a really bad week. But this week, I'm going to be really good. And then Jesus is going to love me again. And you're supposed to have those thoughts that are totally wrong and then show up and there's this visual sensory experience of communion. And that, this, the idea of this meal is every week we show up and Jesus drop kicks those thoughts out of our mind. And he says, nope, that's not how it works. You're the worst sinner in the entire world and I love you anyway.